We are continuing our series in the book of Colossians, and so today we're excited to get back to that. And uh, as we think through uh, the book of Colossians, one of the things that we tried to highlight last week was that it is a book of fundamentals, of getting back to the fundamentals. A pretty short book, and Paul is very straightforward in his, uh, his, his advice, his teaching to the Colossian church. And he is giving them, in many ways, what are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Now, my undergraduate degree was in economics at the University of Nebraska. And one of the things that I loved about economics were all the different ideas that I learned kind of in my studies. It was exciting to kind of hear the, the different economic theories, hear the, uh, the, the, the different thoughts about how people operate, about how they work, about how economies work. And one of the things that became quickly apparent as you study economics, the science, the so-called science of economics, is the reality that it is a very unsettled science. I mean, year after year, decade after decade, new economic theories are constantly being proposed or put forward by the most learned economists of the age. And as you go throughout the history of economics, you realize that people are complicated and the world is complicated, and economic theories and, and the way people think we should operate or how the basis on which we should operate our economy frequently changes. But if there was one thing throughout all of my time studying economics, and I still dabble in that, I still read economic articles and, and enjoy the topic, but if there's one thing that I've determined is almost certainly settled in the field of economics, it's this, that the family is the fundamental structure in society. The family is the fundamental element of any economy and of any society. That is true universally in every culture and in every age. So goes the family, so goes the society. We see that in our culture today. We see that in our society. Social scientists who, who study these things uh, have, have done plenty of work looking into family and family structure. And one of the things, one of the conclusions that they've come to is that adjusting for all other factors, for everything else, from race to income level, all of those things, uh, ethnicity, where you came in, whether you're an immigrant or whether you were born here, every factor you can possibly think of, controlling for all those things, the one thing that fuels poverty in any country, including here in the United States, the one thing that consistently does it is breakdown of the family. Breakdown of the family. Children with married parents have an 82% less likelihood of growing up in poverty at any point in their lifetime. There's no other factor that comes even close to that. Harvard professor Roz Chetty, who is an economics professor in Harvard, says this, the presence of fathers is the primary factor in predicting social advancement and income advancement through, through the, you know, starting off maybe at a level of poverty. If you have both parents, you have an opportunity to move up and, and to improve your level of life in this country. The one thing that matters is the, is the presence of the father in the household. Social science also bears out very clear statistics on these issues. Boys raised without fathers have a much higher um, drug use, are much more prone to engage in violent crime, go to jail, 
and drop out of school. Girls raised without fathers are much more likely to engage in sexual activity when they're young and also to have children out of wedlock. You see, this issue, this particular issue is a self-perpetuating issue. Fatherlessness, broken homes perpetuate more broken homes and more fatherlessness. It's a self-perpetuating issue. Mental health, children, we have, a, we have a mental health epidemic in our country and in our world, and children who grow up without fathers are much more likely to suffer mental health issues as adults. Two, uh, two authors, uh, Ray Baumeister and John Tierney, one's a psychologist, the other's a journalist, wrote a, a small book in which they try to look at the, the question of the, the impact that fathers have on children. And one of the things they describe in their book is an is a, is a, is a experiment where the researchers who were conducting this experiment took children, some who, had, who came from uh, two-parent homes, some who came from uh, single-parent homes, and they, they gave them a little test. They offered each of these children of various ages an opportunity for a small gift that they could receive immediately Or, if they could wait 10 days, they offered them a very valuable gift, and they told them what the gift was. And so, they all knew. They all knew what this was going in. And almost to the person, children who grew up in homes without fathers chose the small gift immediately, whereas children who grew up in homes with both parents were able to delay their gratification, right, and pick the more valuable gift in the future. And they opined on this, and they they came to some conclusions that fatherlessness has an incredible impact on things like self-esteem, how you view yourself. It has an incredible impact on self-control. Are you able to control immediate urges? And it had a significant impact on outlook in life. What's your outlook on life? Do you have hope? Can you look forward into the future and see good things coming? And that bears itself out in those kinds of experiments. And that's a problem because the impact of fatherlessness has a real impact on society. And we're not doing very well on this metric. In 1960, 90% of children lived in homes with both parents. And the vast majority of those homes were with their biological parents. In 2015, only 69% of children lived in a home with both parents. And in that statistic, you can break it down even further between how many lived in with homes with second or third marriages, or in some kind of alternative arrangement. It is the consisting finding of economics that family structure is fundamental to society. Now, I don't want to cite these statistics to have us start to think about the good old days back in the 1960s. That's not the reason why I bring this up. There were no good old days back in the 1960s. 
There were problems back then as well. But I want to cite these statistics because they are evidence outside of the Scriptures for something that the Scriptures have already known since time immemorial. When we see the breakdown of the family, we begin to see the breakdown of society. Now, I think this information will provide a good backdrop for Paul's teaching today. Remember, we're talking about the fundamentals in Colossians, the fundamentals in Colossians. So, why does Paul, after what we just talked about last week, about what it means to put on Christ, why does he move from there to the family? Because that's what we're going to be looking at today. Let's take a look at uh, um, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, 1. If you have your Bibles with you, you can, if you don't, you can pick up one there on, on the seats next to you. But here's what Paul has to say today in Colossians. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your fathers, obey, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So as we've been discussing over the past several weeks, especially last week, uh, we, we looked at the, how, how Paul's teaching in the book of Colossians is so much based on the fundamentals. And the chief fundamental that he teaches us in chapter 1 is simply this, Christ is King. This entire world was made for Him and made by Him, and our focus should be on Him alone. He is the focus for everything that we do. And in chapter 2, we, have, we looked at various uh, things that may distract us from our focus on Christ. We looked at human philosophies that often have very high ideals or, you know, are very nice when they're presented to us, but that often distract us from our focus on Christ because what they are really about is about us. They make the focus, they turn the focus inwardly on ourselves, these human philosophies do, and take our eyes off Christ. We also looked at uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, things like man-made religions that try to make us look good compared to other people while taking our eyes off the fact that we're all sinners and our focus should be on the one who was not a sinner, and that's Christ. Well, all our focus should be there. We looked at uh, cultural influences that may drag our attention away from Christ. We looked at all these things that, that distract us from our attention to Christ. And so last week, we looked at the idea that because Christ is king, he deserves all of our attention and all of our loyalty. We serve him. 
And so today, and, and, and finally last week, he gave us the standard by which we are supposed to do that. And so we looked at that, and we'll look at that again a little bit here today. So the reason why Paul transfers from that to the family is simply this. The fundamental building block of the kingdom of God is the family. The family is the fundamental building block for what God is doing in this world. So we, we know that because we can look back at the very beginning into Genesis 1, and we can see in creation how God created mankind and for what purpose. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of, of heaven and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, God made man male and female, husband and wife, and He blesses them and gives them a capacity to multiply and to fill the earth. That is the divine mandate for mankind male and female and children for the purpose of bearing God's image in every part of the world. That's what it means to take dominion, is to serve as God's surrogate here in this world and fill it with His glory, to look like Him. So, we see these two things that are very important to this. Male and female, that's what He made us in His image. And He made us fruitful and able to multiply. And then two, He gave us the purpose to have dominion. Now, in Genesis 3, just two chapters later, we see the first demonic, satanic attack in human history when the serpent appears to Eve. And the, the nature of this attack is as an attack against the family. He attacks Eve. He presents to Eve a temptation. He attempts to deceive her. He attempts to get her not to trust God's Word. And of course, even Eve falls for Satan's lie in the garden. But not only did Eve fall for, Satan lie, for Satan's lie in the garden, Adam stands by as this all takes place passively. And Adam follows her into this sin. You see, one of the things that we get in the story as we read through it is that Adam is given the instructions about the tree of the knowledge of good and e evil before Eve is even created. It was to Adam that the Word of God was given. 
And so as Eve is tempted by Satan, and she falls, she is deceived by Satan's temptations, and she eats of the fruit, and then she gives it to her husband, he says nothing. And it's this attack on the family that leads to dire consequences for mankind. Now, we see, read a little bit more of the effects of this fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Now, I want us to look at that because it's going to be crucial to understanding Paul's teaching here today. After Adam and Eve have sinned, God comes down and meets them. And the first thing He does is He confronts them in their sin. And after He confronts them in their sin, He places a curse first upon the serpent. And He promises to the serpent one day that the seed of the woman will one day crush His head. But then He turns to Adam and Eve, and He he. He places a curse on them as well. And this is what he says. He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. See, God had blessed them and had given them this great ability to multiply themselves, to fill the earth. And the result of their sin is that that great blessing will now become very difficult, very difficult. And then he continues, he says, in pain you shall bring forth children. And then he says this to her, he says, your desire shall be for your husband. Now that phrase, what is being referred to there is different translations have different ways of translating that word used there for for. But the idea behind it is your desire will be contrary to your husband's. You won't want what he wants. You won't want to be ruled by him. You're going to want to rule him. But then God continues and he says, and he shall rule over you. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. And then he says this, and, Adam, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. And so here, this dominion mandate that God had given to Adam and Eve to say, hey, I'm going to give you dominion over everything. Suddenly, just as the woman's childbirth is, is made painful, God says to the man, and so will your attempts to take dominion over this world. It's going to be difficult. And so you see here, implicit in the consequences of their sin are the blessings that God had given to them, the ability to multiply, to have children, and the ability to take dominion over the earth is the frustration of those efforts, that they're made difficult, that they're made hard. 
That's the consequences, right? If you want to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, well, then you're going to see evil. The good things that I give to you are going to go, go, go bad, are going to spoil, are going to sour. If you want to know evil, if you want to taste that fruit, here it is. But what I want you to note is the reason why God places this curse on Adam. What's the reason? What does He say to him? He says, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Then the curse. You see, the reason why this curse falls upon Adam is because he was ruled by his wife and not by God. Okay. It's not about him not ruling his wife, although that's involved. It's that he was ruled by the voice of his wife and not by the voice of God. You see, what God says here is he said, I told you not to eat of it. I didn't tell your wife not to eat of it. I told you. And you listen to her and not to me. You see, the primary attack on the family is on the role of the husband and on the rule of God through him. That's the primary attack that Satan makes. I am convinced, there's no doubt in my mind, that for all the men in here, Satan wants you to be absent. Satan wants you to be passive. And that is Satan's primary attack on the family, and it is the family that is the fundamental, is the foundation for God's mission in this world. And that's why Paul addresses the family as foundational in Colossians chapter 3. And I want you to notice that he addresses the family unit in the same sequence that God addressed the family unit in Genesis chapter 3. First comes the woman. And if you recall, what he said to her was, your desire will be against your husband. It will be to rule over him. You won't be for what he is for all of the time. And you'll have this desire to rule over him. And so, the, what Paul tells to wives in Colossians chapter 3 is this, wives, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. Submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. You see, I have called him, wives, I have called him to follow me. So you must submit to him as he submits to me. Sometimes that's hard to hear in our culture. It's hard to hear because we are so 
all of us. This isn't a female problem. This isn't a male problem. This is a people problem. We want to rule. We want to rule. And God says, no, I rule. I rule, and I've called the husband to follow me, and wives, I've called you to submit to him. Then he turns to advice for husbands, and he says this, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them as you rule. They're submitting to you. So as you rule, do not be harsh. In other words, what he is saying is this, follow my standard. Follow my standard. What should your rule look like? What should the standard look like? He told us that just a few verses before. This is what the standard of God is. This is how husbands should rule. He's just explained this to us, and we looked at it last week. So if you're here last week, you've got a little leg up. But here's the standard. Here's what he says. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ, let the Word of Christ Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Husbands, that is the standard. That is how you rule. And again, the reason why it's so hard to follow Paul's advice here consistently for any woman is because we don't tend to rule that way. We tend to rule our way. But Christ is the standard, and He's given us how we are to rule our households with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with the commands of Christ, with His Word, with the, with the Scriptures informing our every action, our every thought. That's how we rule. That's what God has called us to. And although Wives are still bound by their submission to Christ because remember, what, what did he say to the wives? He said, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. They are submitting to us not because we always meet this standard, 
They're submitting to us out of their obedience to Christ. But that just increases the obligation on husbands to be called to the standard. Sometimes, many times, by our wives. It's not our standard. It's not my standard. It's not your standard. Christ is the standard. Paul teaches about the role of men and women's a little bit more in Ephesians chapter 2. So just a few pages back, Ephesians chapter 5, he's got more information about husbands and wives, and this is what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. He says this, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Again, he starts there with the wives. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay? Now, I wanted to read those verses because there's a concept in here that I think is crucially important to understanding your role as a husband. It's the role of headship. What is that role? What does headship entail? Now, one of the things headship entails is obviously the idea of authority, okay? The idea of authority. There's, there's clearly the idea of authority in play when we're talking about headship. But there can be many different analogies that we could use this, other than the head to describe something that's just about authority, well, what's so significant about Paul's use of headship in this sense is that in that culture, in Greek culture, which is where Colossae would be, the idea of headship implied not only some kind of authority, but it implied an authority that was governed by reason. It implied an authority that was governed by reason. And what I mean by that is this, the Greeks knew that our ability to think came from our brains, came from our heads. And the Greeks had a high view of rationality, of reason. And they wanted to be governed by what was reasonable. Now, the problem with Greek culture is that they didn't know what was true. And the only way you can properly be governed by reason is if you know definitively what is true, right? If your reasoning process has lies in it, it's just like having a, a calculus problem that has errors in calculation. You're never going to get to the right result if there's lies involved in your reasoning process. And so, in Greek culture, one of the things that's unique about it is why we have the, the rise of so much philosophy within that culture is they were obsessed with trying to discover what is true so that they could be governed by reason. And the idea of the headship here is the idea that, that not only do you have authority, but it is your obligation in exercising that authority to be governed by truth, to think. So, husbands, 
as you exercise authority, as you live into this idea of headship, above your ability or your, your obligation to provide physically for your family, which is there, but above that is your obligation to think clearly for your family. And to think clearly for your family, you must be governed by truth. You see, one of the problems here with headship, and we all have this question, is that some of us are not very clever people. Sometimes, in fact, many times, we're not smart. <laughs> many times, we're not the most, you know, intelligent person out there. And so, we may begin to question our ability to lead and to think through complicated issues. And what the point I want to make here is this. It's not about your cleverness. It's about your clarity. It's not about the cleverness of your thought process. It's about the clearness of your thought process. And here's what I mean by that. Do you know who you serve? Are you thinking clearly about Christ as your king? Husbands, if you're not starting there, you're failing in your rule. Our rule as husbands in our household must start with the rule over our own hearts, and Christ better be on that throne. And His Word better rule the way we think. Paul then moves to children, and he says this in verse 20, he says, children, obey your parents. See, parents exercise a joint rule over their children. Both husband and wife rule over their children. And we talked about this a little bit last week, and sometimes I take for granted that everybody's following on the same line of reasoning that I am. Ruling has two things that are associated with it. And we talked about this last week a little bit where, where a ruler is the standard of measurement that you take into the classroom for one foot, right? You, you have a ruler, you take it into the classroom and you, uh, when you were in elementary school so that you could figure out what was a foot and what wasn't a foot. Everybody understand kind of that, that use of the, the term ruler? Because that's what a ruler means. It means being the standard. And so when a king, when you raise a king up over you, you're saying, that's the standard. That's what I want to be. That's what somebody should look like. And Christ is our standard, right? That's how he rules over us. And the second way he rules over us, the second aspect of ruling is teaching what it means to be good making others free. The king is supposed to make others free by passing just laws that help create a just and good society, okay? So, that idea of ruling has those two elements of it, being the standard yourself and also teaching the standard to those who you have authority over, being fair and being just, that's what ruling means in the context in which we, the Bible uses it. And so, parents are supposed to both be the standard for their children and also to teach their children what it means 
to be good. And so, children have this obligation to obey their parents as just rulers over them. And then he continues and he says this, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So, even here, there's a special call out to fathers not to discourage their children. We're going to think about that a little bit more as we look at, I want to be, I want to try to get some guidelines for what it looks like to be a godly parent. Um, And I think the best way to do that, again, is in the Scriptures. The best guideline for it, I think, uh, that we can look at is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You see, God, as He was delivering the Ten Commandments to Israel, after He had done this, He begins to teach them how significant they are, how important they are. And he, he, he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, after he's delivered the Ten Commandments, he, he has Moses go before all of Israel and say this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then he says this, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. We're going to talk about what that means here in a minute. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So here, after delivering the the great Ten Commandments to Israel, God gives Israel a command and says, number one, number one, what I've commanded you here today should be deep in your hearts. You should believe it. You should believe it. And then, because you believe it, you should teach it to your kids. He gives three things here that I think are crucial to teaching your kids the commands of God. Here they are. One, you need to talk about them. You need to talk about them. You need to tell your kids what it is God commands. You need to explain to them what is right and what is wrong. But is talk enough? Is talk ever enough? It isn't. And that next phrase that he uses there, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. The idea behind that phrase is this. The hand to the the Jew was the sign of action. When you were doing something, you did it with your hand. The right hand of the Lord would often save Israel, right? Because the hand is the sign of action. And what Moses is telling Israel is whenever you do something... You should have something tied around your wrists to remind you of the commands of God so that you do what it is He commands. And not only when you're acting, but when you're sitting there, when you're thinking in your thought life, you know what you should do also? You should have something bound between your eyes so that every time you look up, you see the commands of God before your eyes. Now, both of these, I mean, there are Jewish sects Jewish uh, 
uh, religious sects that, that kind of practice this. You'll, you'll sometimes see in, in Jewish circles, these little boxes that people will put on their heads that has the law of God written in it and put in, the, and put in those little boxes. And they're, they're taking this advice, they're taking this instruction very, very seriously on that front. But what's really in play here is every time you do something, it should be in conformity to the commands of God. And as you think, the commands of God should always be before you in your thought life. And so what Moses is doing here is he instructs Israel about how to teach your kids. He's saying not only should you do it, not only should you teach it and talk to them about it, but you should do it. You should do what I'm commanding you. Because they're going to see you. They're going to see you. And that's what they're going to learn. And they're either going to learn that they actually believe what they said they believed. They did it. They lived it out. Or they're going to say, they're a bunch of hypocrites. They want me to do something that they won't even do themselves. They're inauthentic. I think most of us who've grown up in my generation, and this wasn't my personal experience. I had, I had a very uh, uh, wonderful Christian um, influence in my home, and, and uh, they weren't perfect by any means. But uh, I think a lot, one of the things that I've heard that's very common in my generation, it's a common report of my generation and the generation that's, that's coming up, is the sense that they heard a lot of things at church that they witnessed, and they witnessed the opposite at home. That there was a lot of inauthenticity and the practice of their parents that has led them to question the truthfulness of what they were taught. And as we see an ebbing flow of Christianity within the church, I think that is a real problem. So, I'm going to end with, with a few more points here, and then we'll, and then we'll be done. Uh, Finally, there, there's the, the point here that uh, Paul makes about fathers not provoking their children. I mentioned at the beginning of this the, the impact that fathers can have on their children and their outlook for hope in the world. This isn't a, a mandate that fathers, you can't be hard on your children sometimes to teach them to, to be tough, to have some mental toughness. That's not what's going on here. But so often, the harshness of fathers crushes the spirit of children. And Paul warns against that. Fathers, you must meet the standard. You must meet the standard. Compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, and love. Paul concludes here with instructions to bond servants. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to pick that up and my next sermon in a couple weeks. And so we'll come back, we'll circle back to that and discuss that particular issue. I think it's a, it's a significant enough issue that I want to spend some time on that. But as we think about the family, here, I'll end with this point. The family is so important, it's so fundamental to society that the church has a great opportunity here. It is as an opportunity to be both A, a countercultural force in the world, as we see the breakdown of the family, it's the church that has the ability to be countercultural to that breakdown. Because the church 
has the answer for the culture. The church has the truth. We don't do this. We don't create strong families as the church to be different from the world. We do it because we know the truth. We know God's purpose for the family. We know the foundational purpose for the, for the family that God has created, to fill the world with His glory. And so, Paul talks in Ephesians chapter 5 about the marriage as the image of the gospel, with the husband as the head of the, of the marriage, laying down his life for his wife and for his family. And as the wife is a picture of the church submitting to that godly authority. And we've got to live that out. We've got to live that out if we are going to impact our culture. The church must put its money where its mouth is. We've got to act. We've got to tell the world, we've got to tell our own children that we believe what we say by what we do. And it's in that vein that uh, I wanted to, um, I'm going to have my friend Kristen Binky come up here in a minute. We live in a, in a very complicated time where there are massive attacks on the family. And as a result of those attacks on the family, there has been increasingly a breakdown of that family. And unfortunately, one of the primary ways in our culture that we have dealt with that breakdown of the family has been through abortion. As the, since the 60s, one of the most significant moments in our history as a nation has been the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade. And as Roe versus Wade was decided, it opened up opportunities for women to deal with the breakdown of the family by obtaining an abortion, by ending the pregnancy, by killing an unborn child. And this summer, a significant event happened, right? The Supreme Court reversed that decision. And of course, that didn't outlaw abortion everywhere in our country as if, as if the, the Supreme Court made it illegal to have an abortion. What it did do is allow states to pass laws that may outlaw abortion or that do outlaw abortion. And so, in various areas around the country, including Texas, abortion is either A, becoming illegal altogether or more and more difficult to access. Now, that doesn't change the breakdown of the family. That's an ongoing process. And so, the opportunity here is for the church to step into that gap, 